All right, amen. This has been an Easter to remember. Praise God for this spirit today. My, my. I hope that you have enjoyed Easter 2022 as much as I have. Man, God is at work. If you have your Bible here this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24 is where the message today will be coming from. I want to speak to you in our time remaining on the subject of a walk to remember. On February the 21st, 1991, Ruth Dillo was working on her sewing machine at the National Garment Company when she was called to her boss's office. And you know usually when you get called to the office, that's not a good thing. Two somber men in uniform were there to tell her that her youngest son, Private First Class Clayton Carpenter, had been killed by a landmine just two days before the end of the Desert Storm conflict. And there they are pictured. She said, I can't begin to describe my grief and shock. She wrote, the pain was more than I could bear. For three days I wept. People tried to console me, but to no avail. Neighbors came with carnations, cards, and casseroles. Local businesses posted signs in honor of the fallen son. But for Miss Dillo, she had to experience a parent's worst nightmare. She remembers all she could do was clutch a photo of her son and say over and over again, it can't be true. Three days after that horrific news, her phone rang again. The voice on the other end said, Hey, Mom, this is Clayton. Miss Dillo froze. Fearing that someone was playing a cruel trick on her, he said, Come on, Mom, it's your son. Don't you recognize my voice? You've got to believe me. Clayton was calling from a hospital in Saudi Arabia, wounded but very much alive. Turns out there was an error in the army's communication. The military brass offered no details as to how such a grievous mistake was made, but it didn't matter to Mama Ruth. At first, she said, I couldn't believe it. In 72 hours, my world went from planning a funeral to planning a homecoming party. I laughed, I cried, I felt like turning cartwheels. My son, who I thought was dead, was really alive. She told the reporters. Ruth Dillow's heartache was turned into a hallelujah. And that emotional roller coaster also describes the agony and the ecstasy of our first disciples who experienced Easter on that Emmaus road. There they trudged along that first Easter Sunday with their hopes and dreams shattered. A journey that started in unimaginable pain ended in uncontrollable praise. The resurrection turned their doubts into shouts, their sadness into gladness, and their grief into glory. It was a seven-mile hike from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And it is here in Luke 24 that we read the most detailed post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. And get this, it didn't involve Mary nor did it involve Peter or John or any of the famous disciples. In fact, the two disciples that we meet along the road of Emmaus are unknowns up to this point. We only see them here, and then they disappear off the pages of Scripture. We don't even know all of their names. One was named Cleopas, the other 
Well, their name is not recorded. And it is with these two unknowns that Jesus has the most profound conversation about the resurrection than he does with anybody else in the Scriptures. I think that this walk to remember in Luke 24 is so relatable to you and me because often we will find ourselves on an Emmaus road that is potholed with disappointments and disillusionment and doubt and discouragement. But there's hope today. The reality of Easter is that we don't walk that road alone. The risen Christ accompanies us even when belief in God feels impossible. That's what this story teaches us in a nutshell. But I want to point out for you today three ways that Jesus ministered to these two Emmaus Road disciples. And just as He ministered to them, He will minister to you and I in these specific ways as we look at a walk to remember. Number one, I want you to see this today. The risen Christ gives comfort for broken hopes. The risen Christ gives comfort for broken hopes. Let's read Luke 24, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. The risen Christ gives comfort for broken hopes. These disciples could feel their jilted faith slipping away with every step along the dusty Emmaus road. Picture them, if you will, with their heads hung low. They shuffled their feet. They drooped their shoulders And if you have ever walked to the graveside of somebody you love or ever walked a mile of loneliness or depression, you know exactly that abandoned feeling that these men dealt with. These disciples, they had devoted their whole life to Jesus and now it seemed as if every miracle that He had performed, every message that He had preached was for naught. What should have ended in their minds in a coronation ended in a crucifixion. So their hopes were dashed. But then we read here in our text that Jesus approached these disciples incognito. And He speaks to them. And the scene begins to develop that drips with irony and a touch of humor. Because we see here that Jesus plays dumb like a fox. Cleopas has him pegged as 
some guy who's been living in a cave, and he has been for the past three days, at least his body. The one they think is dead is actually alive. The one they think is lost is actually seeking them. And the one that they think needs to be taught is actually teaching them. So a great role reversal happens in this text. And then we read very curiously in our text that their eyes were kept from seeing Him. In other words, Jesus purposely hid His presence from them, or His identity from them at least. We'll talk more about that later, but they weren't really looking for Him either, were they? Even though the report had come from the women, they still did not believe the news. It was too good to be true, or maybe they just seen something, or they were hallucinating. It couldn't be. But as Jesus begins to talk to them, they begin to unload upon the Christ that their hopes and dreams were broken. They said, we expected one who would deliver us, who would set up the kingdom. Somebody, in other words, who would be a military king who would overthrow the Romans. And they were disappointed that Jesus didn't live up to the idea of him that they had built up in their head. How many of you know that God doesn't act the way always the way that we think He should or the way that we want Him to? You can't put God in a box. Amen? They were disappointed because they had hyped up Jesus to be somebody and He didn't live up to that standard, at least not yet. Adding to the confusion, there were all these wild reports coming from the women, as I mentioned, of angelic announcements and an empty tomb. What's going on with these guys? I love what Cato writes. He gives this analysis. He says, quote, The Emmaus Road disciples did not recognize Jesus because disappointment will blind you to the presence of God. Is that not true? He said, It's hard to see God when you are looking through cracked glass and a veil of tears. Despair not only clouds our vision, but it hardens our hearts. We get cynical and calloused And when good news comes, in this case, the greatest news of all, we don't want to accept it for fear of being disappointed again. That's why some people stay away from church. Because they got their heart broke. They got disappointed. God didn't live up to the standard they had in their mind. Or maybe they have a jilted faith. Or maybe they were judged. And so they close their heart off. They get callous to their heart. They said, I'll never go back to church again. Max Licato said, they did what we do. They put their heart in a shell because they aren't about to be hurt again. What a great insight. The first ministry I see this morning that the risen Jesus performs for these disciples is, watch this, He pursued them. He came after them subtly, tenderly, patiently. He doesn't condemn them for their lack of faith. He comes to comfort them and to listen to their broken hearts. Do you believe in a God that can still do that today? Psalm 34, 17 said, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Praise God. Christ will meet us at our point of greatest pain. I've got an illustration of this in my own life. A few years ago, we here at Liberty celebrated the life of a great man of God, Mr. Ken Singleton. What a blessing he was to all who knew him. He was a longtime music minister here. 
And he blessed so many people. On the day of his funeral, that was a powerful time, wasn't it, Miss Janice, of storytelling and song singing. And it was really a celebration of a life well lived in Jesus' name. Every song, every speaker spoke about Ken's faithfulness. Well, we left here from the church and we went to the graveside to do the graveside service. And while I was there doing the last little bit of that service, said the final prayer, said amen, and then a a young lady walked up to me with tears streaming down her face. And she said, Preacher, she says, I've heard a lot about my granddaddy's faith over the past few days. And she said, I realize that I want to be saved just like he was. And friend, I'm telling you, right there in the graveyard, right there beside the sad scene of burying a saint of God, there was life in a graveyard. Because that little girl got born again, got saved. Lauren, right, Miss Janice, got saved right there at the graveside. And the, the baton of faith was handed off from one generation to the next. But notice this, even in that moment of tears, even in that moment of brokenness, there was the presence of Christ shining forth, a breaking through. There was life in a place of death. And once again, my Jesus broke up a funeral with His presence of resurrection power. And that's what I want you to see today, that God pursues the brokenhearted those without hope, those whose dreams have been shattered. He came after Cleopas and this other disciple and he began to hear about their spirit and how life had disappointed them and how God suddenly didn't make sense to them in the way that they thought, but yet Jesus ministered to them. Hey friend, listen today. Because He lives, He's with us down the long, lonely road of life. Because He lives, friend... Listen, He's there by the graveside in the sickbed. Somebody say amen today. Because He lives, He can walk the halls with us through the long, dark night. Because He lives, my hope is now eternal. There is purpose in my pain. There is victory in my defeat. There is faith in my future. There is glory even in my death. You see, because the tomb is empty, I don't walk alone. Even when I don't see Him, even when I don't feel Him, He's there. He's in between the sadness and the solution. He's there working. The silence of God and the hiddenness of God doesn't negate the presence of God, nor the peace of God. You see, the risen Christ brings hope. Then also I want you to see this today. Not only does He give comfort for broken hopes, but notice The risen Christ gives clarity for bewildered heads. Notice verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, watch this, and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. You see, these disciples, as I read it, they were not only suffering from a broken hope, but they also had a bewildered head, which means that they were confused. Remember I told you they thought, according to their reading of the Scripture, that the Messiah was was going to be a, a military ruler, a king, somebody who would overthrow. And that's why Jesus 
takes them back to the Word of God. And what we read here is that they had a flawed view of the Messiah due to an incomplete understanding of the Scriptures. You see, the Jews saw the Messiah as a conquering lion, not as a suffering lamb. But we know through the benefit of hindsight now, as you read the Old Testament, he's to suffer first and then enter into his glory. There's a cross before there's a crown. They expected a different Messiah. And that's why there was a need for a seven-mile-long Bible conference on that road to Emmaus. And so the Bible says, starting in Genesis and working all the way through the prophets, the Psalms, even the Malachi, Jesus began to connect the dots of Old Testament prophecy and He began to give clarity for their bewildered heads. You see, what these disciples needed to realize was that what seemed like the ultimate miscarriage of justice turned out to be the Father's plan to glorify His Son. In other words, Christ was no victim being led to the cross. He laid down His life. He took up His life according to His own authority. The cross was not an accident. It was an achievement. And He's helping these disciples to understand it through the lens of the Word of God. Think about this, the living Word of God explaining the written Word of God. Warren Wiersbe, the great Bible commentator, he said this, Imagine the greatest teacher of all time explaining the greatest themes of all time from the greatest book of all time. He gave them the key to all the Bible study that they would need, and that is this. And if there's one thing that you might ever benefit from my years of preaching, it's this, to see Jesus Christ on every page. He's there in the Old Testament. He's there in type and shadow. He's there lurking in places where you don't think He is, but He's the grand theme, the subject, the star of Scripture. The Bible gives us this phrase that we've adopted or this theme that we've adopted. In the Old Testament, Jesus is concealed, but in the New Testament, Jesus is revealed. I've often wondered as I read this passage, you know, what did Jesus teach them? On that walk to remember. Boy, if I could have ever been a part of a Bible lesson, that was one I would want to be a part of. Jesus explaining it all to them as they walked. How did He do it? Well, I, I have to use a little bit of a sanctified imagination, but maybe, friends, He started in the book of Genesis. It's always a good place to start, isn't it? He went to Genesis first, and maybe He taught about the fall of Adam and even those cloaks of skin that the Bible says that God made for them after they had fallen to cover their sins. And then He pointed them to the fact that without the shedding of blood there could be no remission of sin. He could have gone to Genesis 3.15 and explained to them the first prophecy of the Bible that the serpent uh, would, would bite his heel but, but Jesus Christ being the Redeemer would come and crush the head of the enemy. You see, Satan was playing checkers, but God is playing chess, and he's ten steps ahead of the enemy. And he could begin to unfold the Scriptures. Maybe then he went to Genesis 22, and he told that story of the father and the son going up to Mount Moriah. I'm talking about Abraham and Isaac. And in putting the wood on the back of the son, Isaac, and as they trudge up the hill, he asked the question, Father, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham turns to Isaac and says... God Himself will provide the lamb. And as He's got Isaac tied to that altar, as He's about to plunge the heart, uh, the uh, knife in His heart, oh, there was a rustling over in the bushes. 
You see, God did provide a sacrifice. You see, what Abraham and Isaac didn't know was that as they were going up one side of the mountain, God was sending the sacrifice up the other side of the mountain to meet them at just the appointed hour. And Jesus could have said, look, that was a picture of me, my father, and I'm the son. And now, that was a picture of 2,000 years ago, but I went up the cross. I went up to the hill of Calvary, and I was the sacrifice. I was the one who was laid on the altar. Maybe he went to Genesis 12 and talked to him about the Passover lamb. How the blood had to be sacrificed and shed across the doors of the believing families. And when they, the angel saw the blood, the, the angel passed over. And he, he could have told them about him being the Passover lamb and how sacrifice was required. He could have gone to the book of Leviticus and talked about the scapegoat. How that on the Day of Atonement there was a sacrifice made and the sins were transferred from the high priest to the animal and one of those animals was let go free in the wilderness and one was taken to the altar. And, and Jesus was the fulfillment of both of those. He sent our sins away, but then He also became the one who died for your sins and mine. Maybe He could have taken them to the book of Numbers and when the people were sick, when they had been bitten by snakes, uh, God told Moses, hey, take a serpent forge it out of brass, hold it up on a pole, and tell the people, those who look shall live. And that's what he said to Nicodemus, look upon me, I'm the one, I'm the one who's cursed, I'm the one who's the sin curse for you and for me, but look to me and you will live. You get the point? Maybe he went to the book of Joshua. He's the captain of the Lord's armies in that book. Maybe he went to Judges and showed them how he was a deliverer greater than Gideon and mightier than Samson. Maybe he took them to the book of Ruth and showed them that like Boaz, he was the kinsman redeemer who got the Gentile bride and redeemed the old Jewish lady and brought everybody together in salvation. Maybe then he could have gone uh, to Psalms and he could have spent time in Psalm 22 and talked about he was the forsaken one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then took him to Psalm 23 and said, Oh, but I'm the good shepherd. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Then he could have taken him to Psalm 24. Open up the gates and let the King of glory come in to the holy city. Uh, then maybe he went on to the prophets. He could have gone into Isaiah chapter 9 where he's called, listen to this, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He could have talked to him from the book of Jeremiah how he was the fulfillment of the weeping prophet. Then in the book of Daniel, he's the stone not made with hands who's coming screaming across the sky to come and smite the kingdoms of men and take over and set up shop here. Old friend, he could have gone to the book of Jonah and pointed out how Jonah was a sign of the resurrection for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I don't know what the Bible study was about or how it went, but friend, I think it may have went something like that. Oh, friend. You see, in the Old Testament, Jesus is expected in the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In Acts, Jesus is preached. In the Epistles, Jesus is explained. And in Revelation, Jesus is coming soon. Amen? Now here's what I want you to see from this in terms of application. Jesus hid His identity on purpose. Didn't He? That's what the Bible says. You ever come to a place in your walk where you're looking for God? You're praying, you're seeking, and it seems like God is nowhere. He's hidden Himself from you. 
Somebody said, when the teacher's giving the test, the teacher's always silent. They didn't know that it was Jesus walking with them. Here's the lesson that he was trying to teach them. Jesus was about to leave the earth. He's about to return to the Father. He would no longer be with them physically. And so they have to learn how to walk the walk of faith without Him. Being physically present on the earth and on the Emmaus Road. That's why He takes them back to the Bible. He takes them back to the Word of God for two reasons. Number one, He's transferring their dependence upon His physical presence now to the living, breathing Word of God. And number two, He's showing them something. That God is in control. He's walking them through all of Old Testament history. And friend, when you find yourself on an Emmaus road of discouragement, you know what the solution is? Go back to what's been written. Go back to the Word of God. It's faithful. It's true. It's time-tested. And He reminded them along the way, Hey, look, you weren't the first to suffer. Remember Job? You're not the first one to fail. Remember David? You're not the first one to doubt. Think of Thomas. And you're not the first one to be outnumbered and overwhelmed. Think of them at the Red Sea. And you're not the first one to think that it's all over and there is no hope. Just look at these disciples. And so friend, the lesson is, when you're on that long, lonesome road and you feel that God is nowhere to be found, you can't see God, you can't find God, go back to the Scriptures and Christ, I guarantee you, He will open your eyes. He will show you, hey, I'm there through the suffering. I'm there in the sin. I'm there in the setback. And I work through it all to bring salvation to my people. In one of his books, David Jeremiah tells a story of this couple named Carla and Peter Tuff. As a pastor while serving in North Dakota. Bad things don't happen to pastors, do they? Well, listen to this. During a family vacation, their adult daughter, Rachel, collapsed and suddenly died of a pulmonary embolism. Peter wrote of their sadness, the dad. He said, it felt like we were adrift in a big ocean of depression with no land in sight. Some of you are there right now. Sometimes it would seem like the swells of grief would just push us under and we weren't sure we would come up or even that we wanted to. Then one day, the Lord helped them with a providential discovery. While cleaning out some of Rachel's belongings, they came across a card that she'd made but never gave to them. In fact, it was an Easter card. Listen to this. But she passed before she could give it to her parents. On the cover was a picture of her and her siblings dressed up in their Easter outfits. But they opened the card and there was a handwritten note from her and a Bible verse. You know what the verse was? John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. The Tufts knew, they said, that God intended for that card never to be sent so that they could find it at their moment of greatest doubt and pain and they would be pointed back to the sure and true Word of God. Here's what he wrote. Peter Tuft said, God spoke His Word to us through the handwriting of our deceased daughter as if to remind us, she's not lost. She's with me. <laughs> Even though it seems like the worst thing, God spoke to me in that moment and said, it's not the last thing. Amen? Amen. 
Oh my, that's the God that we worship and serve. Clarity for bewildered heads. He gives comfort for broken hope. And then number three, notice this. The risen Christ gives confirmation for burning hearts. Confirmation for burning hearts. Look at verse 28. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them all the scriptures of the things concerning Himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if He was going further. They urged Him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. So He went in to stay with them. And when He was at table with them, He took the bread, and He blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were open. They recognized Him, and He vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened up to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and He has appeared to Simon. Notice the progression in our story. First, Christ opened the tomb. Then Christ opened the Scriptures on the road. And now when they get to their destination, He opened their eyes. And finally, He opened their mouths so that they might preach the news of His resurrection. You see, here's where the hinge point of this whole story falls right here. The Bible says that when they discovered it was Jesus with them all along, they got a case of the holy heartburn. That's the Derek McCarsonism. That's not in the Scriptures. But their hearts burned within them. And they realized it was Jesus. Now, Dr. Luke doesn't say what it was exactly that took place, but he said it happened when Jesus broke the bread. It tipped them off. No doubt. In that scene, they could have recollected. They could have thought about the upper room where Jesus broke the bread there for His disciples. They could have thought back to John chapter 6 there in the wilderness when He broke the fishes and the loaves and fed the multitude there in that desolate place. But I think it was something more that it dawned on them. Luke doesn't say it explicitly, but I think Luke assumes that his readers are going to be clever enough to pick, pick up on it. You see, when Jesus served them, it was something in the service that tipped them off that they knew it was Christ. You know what I think it was? I think that Jesus rolled up his sleeves and as he rolled up his sleeves, he broke the bread and he handed that crust of bread over. And what did they see right there on his wrist? They saw the nail scars. And just as fast as the neurons in their brain could put it together, he was gone. Passing through walls like water through a sieve. And he brought confirmation to their burning hearts. And these Emmaus Road's disciples joined the other 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrection whom Paul records in the New Testament. Many of whom, by the way, were persecuted and martyred for their insistence that Jesus was raised from the dead, proving that He was the Son of God. These two who witnessed Christ there joined the ranks of others in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at what Paul wrote there. Verse 3 and following, he says, I delivered to you that which of first importance that I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas or Peter. Then to the twelve, then He appeared more to, than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, that is, they've died. 
And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, one untimely born, he also appeared to me. There's a lot of doubters and a lot of skeptics out there who say, you know, I don't know. It just takes so much faith to believe that a man could die and come out of the grave. And yet, do you know how many people have tried to disprove the resurrection and failed? And in the process, under the weight of the great evidence in favor of the risen Christ, convert and become Christians? Hey, the surest way you can become a if you're a skeptic, the surest way that you can become a Christian, try and disprove the, Christ, the, the Christian faith through the resurrection. In fact, Lee Strobel was one of them. He was an atheistic journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ about his experience. He said, look, I had to come to face with the evidence. He said, if you took all of these 500 eyewitnesses, including these, including these two here in Luke 24, and you were to put them on the witness stand and give them all 15 minutes to talk about what they witnessed, He said, you would be there for 129 straight hours listening to one person after another say, over a period of 40 days, Jesus appeared to over 500 people on 12 separate occasions. Four times people touched Him. Four times people ate with Him. Who could listen to that kind of witness and come away unconvinced? You see, friend, there's rock-solid evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Christianity didn't begin because the apostles read something Christianity began because the apostles saw someone. It was the risen Christ. But the story doesn't end there. The Bible says they got up that very moment and they made a seven mile journey back to Jerusalem. That's 14 miles in one day. And I guarantee you, the seven miles back was a whole lot better than the seven miles too. You know what that teaches me? Hey, When you have the risen Christ in your life, it makes the journey down the road a whole lot more joyful, a whole lot more love-filled, a whole lot more hopeful as you look ahead. Their defeat had been turned into victory. Their despair had been turned to hope. And their tears of joy were now being shed. Here's the final application as I draw this thing to a close. You ready? The resurrection changes everything. And that truth, when it ignites your heart, it makes the journey down life's road filled with excitement. I get to preach the gospel. I get to be a pastor. I get to baptize souls that have been transformed by the power of the risen Christ. And friend, that's something that burns within my heart every day. I get to put feet on the ground and go out and serve the greatest one who ever lived, who gives the greatest offer to whosoever will. Eternal life, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. And oh yeah, heaven too. If that doesn't burn within you, friend, do you know Him? Because of the resurrection, my sins are forgiven. My death is not final. My failures are not fatal. My sadness is only passing. My resurrection is assured. My faith is fact. And my life is eternal. And most assuredly, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, I know, I know, He lives. These two disciples reminded me of two other men in history who met along life's road 
and how Christ called them, convinced them, and converted them. These two men were men who started out in skepticism and doubt. There they are. They were Gilbert West and George Littleton. I don't know if you've ever heard about the story of these guys, but listen carefully. They parallel these two men that we meet here in Luke 24. During the mid-1800s, there were two Englishmen who set out to disprove Christianity. There they are. One was a well-known English lawyer and literary scholar named George Littleton. The other was an Oxford professor named Gilbert West. And they agreed that if Christianity was to be discredited, two things would be necessary. Number one, they had to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. And then number two, they had to disprove the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And so these two men met and they divided the task between themselves. George Littleton said, I will disprove the conversion of Saul. And Gilbert West said, I'm going to debunk the resurrection of Jesus. They invested over a year in their studies. They exchanged letters back and forth about their progress. After a year of rigorous research, they met together to compare notes and the final verdict. Amazingly, as they met, they each talked to one another and found out that they had both converted to Christianity (laughs) during their studies. They said that the evidence for Christ's resurrection and the conversion of Paul was true, too strong and undeniable, and they published their findings in two books. But it doesn't end there. Two of those books were sitting on a library shelf one day, and a college student named Josh McDowell, who also set out to disprove Christianity, picked those books off the shelf and began to read them, and he was convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then in 2003, another college student named Derek McCarson was in Davis Library at UNC Chapel Hill. He'd just gotten out of Dr. Bart Ehrman's New Testament class. And I was so mixed up, didn't know what to believe anymore. Everything that my parents had taught me, my pastor had taught me, my Sunday school teacher had taught me seemed to be, I don't know. I had so much doubt in my heart. And I found a book. Somebody laid it in my hands, written by Josh McDowell. The new evidence that demands a verdict. And as I began to read the evidence for Christ's resurrection, I began to read of what God did in Josh McDowell and what God did in the lives of these men. And look, the faith was handed down from one generation to another generation to another generation. And Jesus was there. And Jesus met me in the dark, lonely halls of Davis Library in a God-forsaken university. He was there! And He showed me the truth that I could build my life upon. And friend, because He lives, I'm standing before you today preaching the risen Christ. Oh, friend, do you know Him today? Is He your Lord and Savior? He's more than just a figure of history. He's way more than just a fairy tale bedtime story that we tell our kids. He's real. And He's changing lives at this place. And as our musicians are coming and we're preparing for invitation now, I wonder, do you need to respond today? Do you need to nail it? And say, look, I'm tired of playing games. I'm I'm going to make my calling and election sure I'm coming forward, Brother Derek, to give my life, my heart, my all to Jesus Christ. Hey, you can do that today. Maybe you need to be obedient to the Lord in some other way. You want to join the church or you saw the baptism and you say, I I, I need to do that. I need to be obedient and be baptized today. Whatever the need of the hour is, 
brother's going to lead us as we sing and stand. And you listen to what God is speaking to you in this moment. You can be saved. You can be born again. You can get a new life and resurrection hope here on Easter Sunday. What better time?